CDC votes on vaccine requirement for kids to go to school. How close are we to nuclear war? ABC TV reporter vanishes into thin air and updates on stories we've been covering in recent episodes. The fallout from the verdict in John Durham's latest trial. Oh, and did I mention the U.S. University Lab that has developed a new strain of COVID that's 80% fatal and the Democrats want to take your kids away if you don't let them go transgender. Oh, and Biden implies we're already at war. The hits just keep on coming on this special information overload edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We are the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 264 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Thursday, October 20th, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says become a patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. All right, did you hear or did you know that someone tell you what Dementia Joe just implied that we're already at war? The right that I pushed hard and it finally got changed. The married couples in the privacy of the bedroom. Excuse me. The mar- I'm thinking about the Dobbs, the Dobbs decision. Imagine. Well, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Very funny, guys. Very funny. Yeah, we all know he's got dementia. Married couples in their bedroom. Come on. This is embarrassing, guys. People actually call this guy president of the United States. People actually say he got 81 million votes. <laughs> All right, guys, come on. Not that gaff. This gaff. My message to American energy companies is this. You should not be using your profits to buy back stock or for dividends. Not now. Not while a war is raging. You should be using these record-breaking profits to increase production and refining. Invest in America. You know, I think the great Colonel Kurt Schlichter probably put it best out there on the Twitterverse when he said, what war is that? Good question, Colonel. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what war he's trying to get us into. And apparently we do have special ops guys on the ground in Ukraine and have for quite some time. Kind of like the early days in Vietnam when we just had advisors over there, right? You know, before the Gulf of Tonkin incident. But I don't think we've actually had a vote to go to war yet. Speaking of which, let's take a look at what journalist Glenn Greenwald 
is saying with a uh, thread over there on Twitter about the possibility of us actually getting in a nuclear war with Russia. So, this from a few days ago, earlier this week. He says, good morning. Western security experts say there's a 10 to 25% chance Russia will use nukes in Ukraine. Biden says we're closer to nuclear war than any time since 1962. Russia and NATO are both conducting supposedly long-planned nuclear drills. U.S. is threatening full retaliation. Have a nice day, everybody. And he's got screenshots. And it looks like the first one's probably from the New York Times. I'm not positive, but it says... uh, the title, Biden Calls the Prospect of Armageddon the Highest Since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Subtitle says his blunt warnings, highly unusual for an American president, were delivered informally to a group of Democratic donors in New York City. Okay, that's old news. That's from you know, a week or so ago. I think one of the reasons so highly unusual for an American president is I, you know, I can't really call him president. Then there's a screenshot of a Q&A. Question, so is Putin just trying to appease some of his critics or might he actually use a nuclear weapon? Answer, the Russian leader is probably the only person who can answer this question with authority. Most nuclear experts say the likelihood of Russia actually using a nuclear weapon is still relatively low, but given Putin's current predicament and his public statements, the threat is seen as increasing. Bunn said his best estimate is that there's a 10% to 20% likelihood that Russia might use a nuke. While that's a pretty low probability for most things in life, when it comes to nuclear weapons, Bunn said it's intolerably high. And again, unfortunately, it's just a a screenshot, so we're not quite sure who Bunn is. Then a screenshot of a headline from Bloomberg. Russia and NATO are both holding nuclear drills despite rising tensions. A couple of bullet point subheadlines. NATO plans big exercise starting next week in Western Europe. Officials say Russia hasn't shifted its nuclear arsenal. I guess that still means it's pointed our direction, right? And then from what looks like the UK Guardian, a headline, Petraeus, colon, U.S. would destroy Russia's troops If Putin uses nuclear weapons in Ukraine, subhead, former CIA director and retired army general says Moscow's leader is desperate and battlefield reality he faces is irreversible. Petraeus, now isn't he the guy that um, had the affair while he was in office as a general with the woman who was his biographer and I I, th- I think he actually, didn't he actually share some classified material with her? So, I mean, why is it he didn't go to jail? I'm just, I'm just thinking back, you know. Good times, good times. Glenn Greenwald continues, all of this is over who will govern provinces in eastern Ukraine, which former President Obama in 2016 said are not and never will be of vital interest to the U.S., but are and always will be of vital interest to Russia, given its right over their border, but far from our border. And he's got a screenshot from the Atlantic. 
from back in 2016. It says, Obama's theory here is simple. Ukraine is a core Russian interest, but not a core American interest. So Russia will always be able to maintain escalatory dominance there. Obama said, the fact is that Ukraine, which is a non-NATO country, is going to be vulnerable to military domination by Russia no matter what we do. The writer for The Atlantic says, I asked Obama whether his position on Ukraine was realistic or fatalistic. And Obama answered, It's realistic, but this is an example of where we have to be very clear about what our core interests are and what we are willing to go to war for. And at the end of the day, there's always going to be some ambiguity. The writer for The Atlantic said, Obama then offered up a critique he had heard directed against him in order to knock it down. Quoting again, I think that the best argument you can make on the side of those who are critics of my foreign policy is that the president doesn't exploit ambiguity enough. He doesn't maybe react in ways that might cause people to think, wow, this guy might be a little crazy. So it looks like um, the Biden regime, at least on this, has really departed quite a bit from Obama. Then Glenn Greenwald has a uh, quote tweet of something from uh, Republican name only Adam Kinzinger, the uh, guy with the R by his name, who's over on the um, January 6th sham commission. Kinzinger has given some guy named David Sachs grief, saying it must be a tough existence being so afraid. Ukraine. Oh, because David Sachs had said, if one of my companies told me that it had a 25% chance of going out of business, we would drop everything and focus on that. Intelligence analysts say there's a 25% chance of nuclear war, and Biden is in Oregon. So Kinzinger says, must be a tough existence being so afraid. The Ukrainians started as the underdog but still fought and now will win. Old snowflake David Sachs is trembling as he blames America for the invasion. To which Glenn, Glenn Greenwald says, um, being sarcastic about Kinzinger, be a real man like Adam Kinzinger. Stop all your whining about how you think it's bad to trigger the first use of nuclear weapons since 1945 when their potency was a small fraction of the modern-day version of those weapons. Real men play with nukes. And then he has a, a quotation, I guess, as if it's, oh, from a senior Bush official back in 03 who said, anyone can go to Baghdad, real men go to Tehran. Greenwald says, this was the battle cry of neocons in 03 when they wanted to move from Iraq to Iran and topple that government too. Even though they wanted to send other families' kids they thought their support for it made them real men. Glenn Greenwald continues. It seems alarming that so many U.S. foreign policy elites, most of them apparently, are just so casually musing 
like this about all the possible ways that nuclear war and World War III might unfold. If I found myself saying such things, I'd probably stop and ask, A, over what? And B, how can we resolve it? And he's got a screenshot here of Michael McFall, who's a university professor who used to be Obama's ambassador to Russia for a couple of years. And McFall says, quoting, I guess, from his own op-ed in the Washington Post, after a nuclear attack, no Ukrainian leader would call for surrender. Instead, Zelensky would have every reason to bring the war to Russia, including attacks on targets in Moscow and other major cities. Greenwald responds, The use of nuclear weapons is extremely bad. Arguably the single worst thing that could happen within the realm of realistic possibilities. If there's even a 2 to 3% chance of its happening, let alone 10% to 25%, I would suggest that finding ways to avert it should be the top priority. You know, I don't agree with Glenn Greenwald on everything. There have been times that I disagreed with him probably on most things. But trying to figure out a way to avert nuclear war, I'm thinking I'm fully on board with what Glenn Greenwald is saying there. You know? That seems like the way to go as far as I'm concerned. Call me crazy. I've been called worse. Now, one of the remarkable things is that most of the mainstream media is still so hyper-focused on getting Trump, you know, orange man bad. It's like they don't care whether we get into a war with another great nuclear power. And Exhibit A, perfect example. Jamie Gangel over on CNN playing a clip from the many hours of conversation, of interview that Bob Woodward recorded with former President Donald Trump. And her introduction to the uh, a clip of recordings from Bob Woodward and Trump, it's just classic. Here's Jamie Gangel on CNN. And at times he thinks he can impress him by telling him about classified information. There you go. Now, when she says at times Trump thinks he can impress Bob Woodward by telling him about classified information, it's like she looks alarmed. Right? Can she be? So ignorant that she doesn't know that out of the 350 million some people in the United States of America, the only person who can legally tell anybody he wants to about any kind of classified information he wants to is the President of the United States. Legally. That's his gig. But I guess Jamie Gangel subscribes to the Alexander Vindman way of looking at things. 
Remember when Vindman was one of the big uh, witnesses for one of the uh, sham impeachments of Trump? And he took great offense that Trump was trying to conduct his own foreign policy and not kowtow to the uh, career bureaucrats who he should have just uh, acceded to and let them run things the way they wanted to instead of go with the mandate he had since he actually was the one of 16 candidates who got the Republican nomination and then beat Hillary Clinton fair and square the first Tuesday, November 2016. See, when you do that, when you actually get elected president, that means you can set your own foreign policy. So part of the reason for at least one, if not both, sham impeachments was, in my humble opinion, the money laundering going on with uh, with Ukraine and uh, Trump was in the process of upsetting the apple cart, not to mention peace is not good for the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us about in his farewell address in January 1961. Just, just so you know. If you haven't heard it, it's on YouTube. Everything's on YouTube. It wouldn't hurt. It wouldn't hurt to go check it out. Every once in a while, somebody will... Uh, We'll say, hey, you remember what Eisenhower said on his last address a few days before he left office? Anyway, Jamie Gangel is firmly persuaded that Trump is crazy. She thinks this portrays him in a bad light. It's less than a minute long. I had to bleep out one cuss word, but here we go. I have built a weapons system that nobody's ever had in this country before. We have stuff that you haven't even seen or heard about. We have stuff that Putin and she have never heard about before. Getting along with Russia is a good thing, not a bad thing, all right? Especially because they have 1,332 nuclear warheads. It's funny that the relationships I have, the tougher and meaner they are, the better I get along with them. You'll explain that to me someday, okay? So just to clarify, Woodward was never able to verify whether this system exists, but he uses it as an example. And there are many throughout the audio books of how Trump's national security advisors, their heads are exploding. Uh, You assume that their heads are exploding. I think it's fantastic that he bragged about a weapon system that Woodward was not able to verify exists. That's fantastic. But Jamie Gangel thinks that makes him look bad. Why? Because she is in the liberal mainstream media, Washington, D.C., New York City bubble. And like so many of them, especially CNN, she is impervious to external stimuli. Now, that's my opinion, and you're entitled to it. Anyway. Anyway. That having been said, here's what I kind of have having, having a hard time understanding. Why does 
Dementia Joe want to go to war with a country which has given his son so much money. Do you hear about Miranda Devine's latest in the New York Post about Hunter Biden? Hunter Biden Link's real estate firm got at least $100 million from Russian oligarch, according to sources. A real estate company with ties to first son Hunter Biden received more than $100 million from a Russian billionaire for property investments across the U.S. that date back a decade, according to sources speaking to the New York Post. The hefty cash injections into Rosemont's realty came from Elena Atorina, one of Russia's wealthiest women, the widow of, of the former mayor of Moscow and a close ally of Moscow tyrant Vladimir Putin. In one portfolio deal, Atorina paid at least $40 million to Rosemont to invest in office buildings across the country, according to a source with knowledge of the transactions. That money went toward the 2012 purchase of seven office buildings in Texas, Colorado, Alabama, New Mexico, and Oklahoma, according to deal-related emails obtained by the UK Daily Mail. The investment purportedly came from Intico Management AG, the Swiss company owned by this Batterina, the, um, the widow of the former Moscow mayor. This isn't the first time President Biden's, oh, I can't call him that. I'm sorry. No, no, I can't. No, we'll call him Resident Biden. This isn't the first time Resident Biden's 52-year-old son has been linked to Batterina, whose late husband, Yuri Lushkov was mayor of Russia's capital for more than 18 years before being dismissed by then-President Dmitry Medvedev in 2010. Arena, who has an estimated net worth of $1.4 billion, had wired $3.5 million in 2014 to a bank account held by Rosemont Seneca Thornton, a consortium formed between Hunter's Investment company, Rosemont Seneca, and the Boston-based Thornton Group. Like Rosemont Realty, Rosemont Seneca Thornton is an offshoot of Rosemont Capital Partners, a private equity firm co-founded by Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden and uh, Chris Hines, stepson of former Secretary of State John Kerry and son of the late Pennsylvania Senator John Hines. And it goes on and on and on. But... Um, so why does Joe want to go to war with that country? I know, I know what you're thinking. Ukraine money laundering has to be even more lucrative, much more lucrative than all the millions the Bidens raked in from Russia. I guess you're right. I guess that's it. Okay, have you heard about the Democrat politician? who wants to pass a law forcing you to allow your grade school child to go transgender? Oh, yeah. Will they ever learn? Probably not. As the late, great Rush Limbaugh used to say, there's no point in trying to reason with them. You just have to defeat them. 
Here's the article. Tyler O'Neill over at DailySignal.com says, as a father, oh, I got to give you the title. Title of the article, the gender-obsessed left will have to pry my children from my cold, dead hands. He says, I like that, by the way. Says, as a father, it is my responsibility to watch out for my children and to protect them from demonic lies and from medical interventions that would leave them scarred, stunted, and infertile. Yet a growing chorus of activists and legislators seem intent on taking children away from parents like me, not because we would harm our children, but because we would protect them from harm. Naturally, these activists don't admit the truth of what they plan to do, They couch the language in Orwellian terms like gender-affirming care in order to make it seem like they, not parents, have the children's best interests at heart. These activists insist that if a child, barely old enough to grasp basic concepts of grammar, mathematics, or geography, claims that he or she identifies with a gender opposite his or her biological sex, That self-identity must override all other concerns. Woe to any parent who dares to disagree with the declarations of an eight-year-old child. He says, in my home state of Virginia, Virginia delegate Elizabeth Guzman, um, delegate, that means she's in the Virginia legislature, a Democrat who represents portions of Prince William, and I wish I knew how to pronounce this other county. F-A-U-Q-U-I-E-R. I'm going to say Fuquay and hope I get it right. Supports a bill to expand the definition of child abuse. Delegate Guzman's bill, HB 580 in the 2020 session, would define as abused any child whose parent or other person responsible for his care creates or inflicts, threatens to create or inflict, or allows to be created or inflicted upon such child a physical or mental injury on the basis of the child's gender identity or sexual orientation. I think he means the 2022 session, because that's what's going on now. He says the bill doesn't spell out exactly what a physical or mental injury on the basis of the child's gender identity means, but mental injury can be rather broadly construed to include a parent's disagreement with a child's self-declared gender identity. Nick Menick, a reporter for WJLA-TV Channel 7, asked Delegate Guzman, what could the penalties be if the investigation concludes that a parent is not affirming of their LGBTQ child, what could the consequences be? Delicate Guzman did not question reporters' framing of the question, but responded that if Child Protective Services runs an investigation and finds a parent guilty, quote, it could be a felony, it could be a misdemeanor, 
But we know that a CPS charge could harm your employment, could harm their education, because nowadays many people do a CPS database search before offering employment. So make no mistake, this bill involves criminalizing a parent's dissent from a child's stated gender identity, and activists are pushing gender identity on younger and younger ages. Delicate Guzman's bill doesn't just represent the goal of one Virginia, Virginia Democrat, however. Major medical organizations such as the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association, and the Children's Hospital Association not only support transgender medical interventions for children, but sent the Justice Department a letter urging law enforcement to crack down on so-called disinformation. This appeared to amount to reporters who run direct quotes from doctors who offer experimental so-called treatments. In other words, they, they want us thrown in jail for telling America what they're doing. Last month, California Governor Gavin Newsom, a Democrat, signed into law SB 107, a bill to turn California into a sanctuary state for so-called gender-affirming care. The measure, which will take effect in January, defines gender-affirming care as an absolute right. It will give California courts the ability to award custody over a child if someone removes the child from his or her parents in another state to obtain such care for that child over the parent's disagreement. Gender activists and their allies who have infiltrated healthcare organizations often insist that experimental transgender medical interventions, which often amount to chemical castration, are essential for gender-confused children to prevent them from committing suicide. Well, that's what the Republican and name-only governor of Arkansas told Tucker Carlson, Aza Hutchinson, April of last year when he vetoed the bill from Republicans in the Arkansas State Legislature to outlaw it. But I digress. The article continues, the twisted logic of this contention enables activists to claim that a parent's disagreement on gender identity constitutes a form of mental harm to a child. The idea that a father's refusing to sign his daughter up for the removal of healthy breasts and the healthy womb constitute child abuse is so absurd. It requires multiple levels of doublespeak to justify. False terms such as gender-affirming care are necessary to cloak the truth of what's going on. In fact, this craze reminds me of the horrific history of eugenics and lobotomies, which were celebrated as the height of progressive service and medicine at the time. The inventor of the lobotomy received a Nobel Prize and many Nobel laureates supported eugenics. Did you know this? Yeah, there's a link to a website called Eugenics Archive. I want to look at it sometime. But I digress. America may look back on transgender surgeries the way horrified students of history look back on these so-called progressive phenomena. 
Yet even less invasive interventions also bring terrifying side effects. Cross-sex hormones can weaken kids' bones and make them more prone to heart disease. So-called puberty blockers, often billed as fully reversible, involve introducing a disease into a child's body and making puberty harder to start again should the child change his or her mind. Did you know this? Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo put it perfectly in comments he sent me back in July. Here's the quote. Medicalization of minors with gender dysphoria might advance the political views of physicians involved in their care. But the data showing any benefits for the actual children is extraordinarily thin. The affirmation model runs at an unacceptably high risk of harm. He says, as a father, it is my job to protect my children from harm And this gender ideology threatens multiple harms. It threatens to confuse my young children about what men and women are. It threatens to mutilate their bodies and deprive them of the long-term fulfillment of having children of their own one day. It threatens to deprive them of their father based on how I answer when my three-year-old daughter asks, Daddy, are you a man? Am I a girl? Not on my watch. If Guzman or Newsom want my children, they can tear them from my cold, dead hands, and I expect I'm far from alone. That is the great Tyler O'Neill over the Daily Signal. Article entitled, The Gender-Obsessed Left Will Have to Pry My Children from My Cold, Dead Hands. And that is phenomenal. Yeah, I got to follow this guy overall. Oh, he's, he's the managing editor of the Daily Media. I got to follow this guy over on Twitter. A guy who's willing to, to, to speak the truth in love, to put it out there, let the chips fall where they may, not worry about who may be offended. That's a real deal. Now, I much prefer the bill that is in the Michigan legislature right now that would classify gender transitions for minors as first-degree child abuse. There's an article about that by Laurel Duggan over at Daily Caller. See, that's, that's doing the right thing. And, of course, all the Democrats will vote against it. That's doing the right thing. That is working to try to protect children. All right? So, um, we've we've merely scratched the surface. Uh, Coming up, we got to talk about the CDC's vote on vaccine requirements for kids to go to school. Got to talk about an ABC TV reporter that vanished into thin air. Updates on stories we've been covering in recent episodes, the fallout from the verdict and John Durham's latest trial, what's going on with the big woke mutual funds. Oh, 
and the the U.S. University lab that has developed a new strain of COVID that is 80% fatal. Can you believe it? I mean, what could possibly go wrong, right? Reality tends to be stranger than fiction. All right, once again, we really appreciate our advertisers, our friends, who make it possible for us to do this show week in and week out, now in our second year. Thank you so much to our friends, our advertisers. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live. RedRiverYourWay.com. You will be glad you did. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes... You probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted because you probably do. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. 
Thank you once again to our advertisers, our friends, Dr. J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree. At the Arkansas Cervical Center, turnmypoweron.com. They're not only our advertisers and our friends, but they're actually our doctors. They have helped me and my wife and so many people that we know. Best kept secret in American healthcare is getting your atlas adjusted. Also, thank you so much to our good friend, Mitch Ward, proprietor of Red River Your Way. Great car deals, great cars, trucks, vans, SUVs. And you can buy one online and get it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America. All right, so much more to talk about here. Um, okay, have you heard the story about the university lab right here in the USA? that has been working on a new strain of COVID with an 80% fatality rate. I mean, what could possibly go wrong, right? I don't know why it is, but a lot of times, a British paper called the UK Daily Mail, or as they like to call themselves now, dailymail.com, has a better handle on some American news than the American mainstream media does. Top NIH director admits Boston lab that created new COVID strain did not clear research with agency and only learned of details on dailymail.com. Dr. Emily Erbelding, a director at NIAID. Well, that's not good enough. What kind of director is she? Checked Wikipedia. She is the director of the Division of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Emily Erbelding at NIAID said she was unaware of specific details of the research at the lab at Boston University. She claims... To have only found out the experiments may have involved enhancing pathogens on Monday, October 17th. Grants totaling $1.1 million from NIAID are listed as having helped fund the research at Boston University. But a spokesman spokesman is now saying they were included as a courtesy and not funded by the government agency. Okay, I don't believe that. Because money is fungible. They said this meant Boston U did not need to clear the research with NIAID officials. Now, friend, let me ask you something. If you're one of these people who says, well, hey, the FBI does do a lot of valuable, legitimate things, and sometimes people need a pre-dawn raid, you know, I mean, if you find out there's MS-13 people that are doing human trafficking and, you know, selling fentanyl and killing people, they need a pre-dawn raid. Okay, all right. But why not these folks? Okay? 
why not a pre-dawn raid for this lab at Boston University, the people who are in charge of that? FBI agents can wear hazmat suits just like anybody else. Right? Why not a pre-dawn raid of Dr. Emily Erbelding's place? Dr. Fauci's place? And his retired boss, Dr. Francis Collins, just for good measure. Yeah? Because a COVID with 80% lethality rate could get out of this lab just like the COVID got out of the Wuhan lab. Oh, 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 you still don't think it came from the lab? How you still think it came from bats? I can't help you. I can't help you. I mean, if that's where you are, I'm just like, you believe in the tooth fairy too? Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, what, what, what? No, I, I just, I'll just say this: get ready for the next episode of the Doc Washburn Show, because I think somebody has proved beyond a shadow of doubt that it came from the lab. Not just, well, that makes more sense than, you know, being silly enough to think it came from naturally from bats. No, no. I, I, I think we've got proof of it. So that, that'll be on the next episode. But these people, um, 80% lethality rate. Let me, let me give you a little bit more. Because I just gave you, the way UK Daily Mail is, does it, they got a big headline, and they got um, like five or six bullet points for subheads. But let me give you from the actual article. A senior U.S. health official today admitted the controversial COVID manipulation research carried out in a laboratory in Boston was not authorized despite being funded by taxpayer money. So no oversight. So she needs to go to jail. And her boss, Anthony Fauci. DailyMail.com exclusively revealed yesterday that a team from Boston University had developed a hybrid COVID virus combining the Omicron and original Wuhan strains, which had an 80% lethality rate. Public records indicate it was partly paid for using a grant awarded by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, one of the federal government's main research agencies. As part of any government-funded research grants, teams have to explain what the money is being used for and how it will benefit the public. But today, Dr. Emily Erbelding, director of NIAID's Division of Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, said the Boston team did not clear the work with the agency. Is it because she just didn't care? Or is she lying? She claims, the, she claims she only found out the experiments might have involved enhancing a pathogen of pandemic potential after reading reports in the media on Monday. Now, wait a minute. Gain of function was what they were doing in Wuhan. Was she not around for that? When did she join NIAID? 
I mean, her Wikipedia doesn't say. Oh, yeah, it does. In 2017, Herbal Dane became director of the NIAID. So she had to know about the gain of function. She's probably in some of those deleted emails with Tony Fauci. Was it the, the great one Mark Levin calls him? Dr. Anthony Fauch Fauch? Anthony Tony Fauch Fauch? Anyway. Dr. Herbalding admitted feeling uneasy about the type of research the grants have been used to fund, given the lingering questions about the role of virus manipulation studies and the origins of COVID. Boston used Biosafety Level 3 National Emerging Infectious Diseases Laboratory extracted the spike protein from Omicron and attached it to the original Wuhan strain that first emerged in China. What could possibly go wrong? The team then exposed it to human cells in a Petri dish and to live mice. The mutant, li- the mutant virus killed 80% of the rodents. What about the human cells? Gee, I wonder where, you got the, where they got the human cells from. I bet I know. The researchers quickly came under fire from many scientists and politicians alike who said they were playing with fire and accused them of conducting gain-of-function research. Well, yeah. That's what they were doing. Now they got a screenshot of a passage from a paper showing that the research used money from NIAID and NIH grants. It was funded by Boston University, which they said meant they did not need to contact NIAID to get clearance for the work. Again, money's fungible. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. So it says Harvard Medical School for assistance with IF image acquisition and analysis. This work was supported by Boston University startup funds, the MS and FD. National Institutes of Health, NIAID, grants are a one, you know, a bunch of letters and numbers and a bunch more. So, yeah. And guess what's going to happen? Nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, UK Daily Mail continues. This type of research has become a hot topic during the pandemic because of theories suggesting it is how COVID emerged. These types of experiments involved making a disease more lethal or infectious for the sake, the sake of studying it and trying to get ahead of future outbreaks. No, no, that was not why they did it. They wanted to create a future outbreak, in my humble opinion, and you're entitled to it. Stunning and trying to get ahead of future outbreaks. How stupid do you think we are? Boston University insisted it was not technically gain-of-function research because its chimeric virus only killed 80% of mice. The original Wuhan strain, for comparison, killed 100% of the rodents. Oh, well, everything's fine then. It's ridiculous. Spokesperson for the university told DailyMail.com, in fact, the research made the virus less dangerous. I mean, should I just put it... um, On a loop, how stupid do you think we are? How stupid do you think we are? How stupid do you think we are? A spokesperson for the university told DailyMail.com, in fact, uh, I just, I I looked at it again. I'm like, no. But independent researchers have already challenged that claim, pointing out that the currently dominant Omicron virus 
was far milder than the new hybrid variant. Of course, Dr. Erbelding said she wished the scientists had informed NIAID of their work. You know, there's an old saying, wish in one hand, I guess wish in the other, see which. She told uh, Stat News, quote, what we would have wanted to do is to talk about exactly what they wanted to do in advance, and then we could have put a package forward for review, unquote. They don't care what you want. Spokesman for Boston University told DailyMail.com they did not have an obligation to disclose this research. They said the experiments were carried out with funds from Boston University. They said, quote, NIAID funding was acknowledged as a courtesy because it was used to help develop the tools and platforms that were used in this research. They did not fund this research directly, unquote. Again, how stupid, how stupid, how stupid do they think we are? Money's fungible. You don't know what it means? Look it up. This left them with no obligation to report the research to the agency as far as they were concerned. The Boston University study has been published as a preprint in BioRxiv, which is some kind of medical website, but has not been peer-reviewed by other scientists. I'm shocked. I'm shocked, I tell you. The team removed the spike protein from Omicron, the part of the virus structure that it uses to infect cells and attach it to, yeah, yeah, we got that. So guess what they should do, but they're not going to do. A criminal referral to DOJ. That's what they should do. Republican Senator of Kansas, Roger Marshall, told DailyMail.com was unconscionable that the U.S. was continuing to sponsor this type of research in densely populated areas. He warned it created the potential to kill more people than any singular nuclear weapon, adding history has taught us that viruses have managed to escape from even the most secure labs. Now, Roger Marshall, he's not just a senator. He's, I'm pretty sure he's a doctor also, isn't he? I'm pretty sure he's also a doctor. Let's let's double check here. Yeah. Roger Marshall, an American politician, physician, and former military officer serving as a junior U.S. senator from Kansas. Yeah. He says, this is not a risk that scientists alone should be able to take without concurrence from the American public. This research must stop immediately while the risks and benefits can be investigated. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, also a doctor, added he was troubled by the news, telling DailyMail.com that oversight of these experiments needed to be strengthened to avoid the next pandemic. He said, as the first senator to hold a congressional hearing on gain-of-function research that can create dangerous new viruses, I am troubled by the news of this research from Boston University. Boston U told DailyMail.com it was false and inaccurate to say it had been carrying out gain-of-function experiments because they did not result in a virus that was more lethal than the original Wuhan strain. No, just more lethal, much more lethal than the more recent Omicron strain. The original Wuhan strain is gone. How stupid. How stupid do they think we are? I mean, there's a lot more, and I recommend that you go to DailyMail.com and 
take a look at the article, but it's outrageous. And, and the FBI, in a sane world, would have conducted a pre-dawn raid on everybody involved with it, including this uh, woman from the NIAID and Fauci, just for good measure. But definitely all the people involved in the thing at the lab at Boston U. Yeah, you don't have to wear hazmat suits. You just, you know, raid their homes before dawn. Right? That's what you do. But NIAID, I would not be surprised if they've never made a criminal referral to uh, DOJ. Oh, boy. So, at the same time, the hopelessly conflicted CDC wants your kids to have to get the clot shot to even be allowed to go to school. The postmillennial.com has the article and a lot of other places do breaking CDC votes to add COVID-19 vaccine to vaccines for kids program. Yeah, they voted on it 15 to nothing on Wednesday, the advisory committee on immunization practices. And, um, I, um, So once they did that, putting in in the the official recommendations on Thursday was a foregone conclusion. TheHill.com has it. A Centers for Disease Control and Prevention advisory panel voted Thursday to include the COVID-19 vaccine on the list of routine immunizations for adults and children as young as six months. The agency's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices unanimously voted to add the coronavirus shot to the 2023 list, which includes shots for the flu, measles, mumps, and rubella, polio, and other inoculations. So, I mean... Now, Tucker Carlson talked about it on his show. And so the CDC said he got it all wrong. The CDC does not control what states decide to do as far as requiring vaccines for kids to go to school. But Tucker pointed out that at least a dozen states have laws that stipulate that their public school systems will follow the CDC guidelines. That's it. So the CDC lies. At least a dozen states have laws that stipulate their public schools will require children to receive all the vaccinations the CDC recommends. And good luck trying to get a religious exemption. I guess it's either easier in some states than other states. Okay, first of all, we got a lot of people who are experts, medical experts, have a lot to say about this. We want to start off with British cardiologist, Dr. Asim Malhotra, who, by the way, is himself vaccinated. I think he regrets it, but he is himself vaccinated. And I want to play for you what he said when he went on with Laura Ingram Wednesday night on Fox. 
later that that data suggested at the time it was likely to cause more harm than good in most people. And that's a smoking gun. That's more than enough evidence for us to pause and stop the vaccine rollout. So myocarditis is one issue. The other very good, clear data um, actually reveals that in people aged between 16 and and 39, Israel data showed this, there was a 25% absolute increase in heart attacks and cardiac arrests, which was associated with the vaccine, but not associated with COVID. This has now been replicated in Florida, a similar type of findings recently, um, and that's why the general surgeon of Florida has come out and suggested that certainly people in that age group shouldn't be having the vaccine. But I've looked at that data, I've spoken to the researchers in Israel, and in fact, this signal of harm is for everybody, even people over the age of 60. Not to that degree. Well, doctor, let me, let me jump in here and just very quickly. Given what we know thus far, was this vaccine rolled out too quickly without adequate testing because of the global pandemic nature of things? Well, I mean, that's what the executive for uh, Pfizer said recently, the EU parliament, right? I think yes, but Laura, I find it very difficult to believe that Pfizer senior executives and Pfizer scientists didn't know when it was being rolled out because they have access to the raw data, which we now know shows significant harm. It's likely they knew this, which means that I don't think it probably, with hindsight, and I'm sure an investigation will reveal this eventually, it probably should never have been rolled out in the first place. Wow. This, I mean, if this is the case, this is a global scandal. We've been covering this from almost day one. A global scandal. Yes. I mean, it's as yeah. big as it gets. It I, I think, Laura, we are, you know, this is perhaps the greatest miscarriage of medical science, attack on democracy, damage to population health, and erosion of trust in medicine that we will witness in our lifetime. I'm speaking to the British Parliament on Thursday on this, two members of the British Parliament to present this data. They need to act now and stop this from continuing to cause more harm. The longer it goes on, the more damage is going to be done, the longer it's going to take to regain trust. Dr. Mahatra, this is just invaluable. We really appreciate your courage in speaking out. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Um, because no good deed goes unpunished and um, people tend to um, push back. On this sort of thing, you know. Now, Dr. Mohatra had a much shorter, urgent message. About 32 seconds long that he dropped on social media. It is my duty and responsibility as a consultant cardiologist and public health campaigner to urgently inform doctors, patients, and members of the public that the COVID mRNA vaccine has likely played a significant role or been a primary cause of unexpected cardiac arrests, heart attacks, strokes, cardiac arrhythmias, and heart failure since 2021 until proven otherwise. Um, I think it's remarkable that not just Tucker, but also Laura, is talking about the vaccine on Fox. Because, you know, Fox took took a lot of money, a lot of vaccine money. And, you know, Tucker has been getting away with talking about stuff that seems like nobody else talks about over there. 
So maybe they realize the tide is turning. I mean, I would think that uh, Fox News does polling just like anybody else does polling. Speaking of Tucker, Dr. Marty McCary was on with Tucker Wednesday evening. It went like this. We're going to give you the top line of the press release. We're going to call the White House, and the White House then calls the FDA and the CDC and tells them to get in line. They bought 170 million doses of this new Omicron vaccine. There has never been a vaccine added to the child immunization schedule without solid clinical evidence that it reduces disease significantly in the community. Yeah, so this is going to do the opposite. They're going to kill a bunch of kids. I don't, I ha, no, I don't have any idea. If anybody is saying this on conservative talk radio, I have no idea. I don't, I don't have time to listen to conservative talk radio anymore. I'm doing this. I mean, <laughs> why do you, I stay up all night researching and doing this kind of thing? But that's what they're going to do. They're going to kill a bunch of kids. As a matter of fact, I got a little something about that coming up for you. Some things already going on. Dr. Robert Malone on Steve Bannon's podcast, War Room. And the other thing that it does is it mandates that Congress will pay for the uh, purchase of these vaccines. Because as you'll recall, the will of Congress has been to say, basically, hell no, we're not going to continue to fund the White House to buy vaccines. So this is a backdoor way to get additional liability coverage and a backdoor way to force the American taxpayer to buy these vaccines and deploy them in children. But they would never detect a myocarditis event with such a small sample size uh, because the incidence of myocarditis in young boys is in the range of 1 in 1,200 to 1 in 1,500. So they, they once again have used clinical trials um, that are poorly designed, inadequately powered, and then are using those to basically force an, a political agenda. The final vote to put it on the schedule will be tomorrow. But it's already 15 to zero to endorse the belief that this should be recommended for children. And uh, the logic of why they're doing this is a head scratcher for anybody that is actually database. But it appears to involve two core things. One is in the event that they stop the declaration of emergency, the liability protection will vanish for these companies that have been deploying these experimental products. And so if they can get it approved and recommended down to the pediatric cohort, then they acquire a different type of liability protection. So it allows legal coverage uh, for the vaccine companies. Yeah, it does. They know what they're doing. And Dr. Robert Malone, he's not the only one saying it. Okay. Um, he's a... Uh, and by the way, he is eminently qualified to talk about this. He's the guy that kind of developed mRNA technology. Anyway, no, he's um, he's not the only one talking about it. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., I'm not the only one saying they're getting ready 
to kill a bunch of kids. And look, I always try to give credit where it's due. We have not been able to get Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on the Doc Washburn Show yet. We will try again. He was on a podcast with someone named Michaela Peterson, and it went like this. So they're never going to market a vaccine, allow people access to a vaccine, an approved vaccine, without getting liability protection. Now, the, the emergency use authorization vaccines have liability protection under the PrEP Act and under the CARES Act. So as long as you take an emergency use, you can't sue them. Once they get approved, now you can sue them unless they can get it recommended for children. What? Because, because all vaccines that are recommended, officially recommended for children, get it liability protection, even if an adult gets that vaccine. That's why they're going after kids. They know this is going to kill and injure a huge number of children, but they need to do it for the liability protection. That's it. They know it's going to kill a huge number of children. I got, I got something for you on that. I got something for you on that. The great Kate Talks Truth over at Auburn on Twitter said, despite public outcry of more than 31,000 public comments on the CDC's website, despite hundreds of experts warning of serious risks, CDC claimed benefits outweigh risks and voted to add COVID-19 mRNA to their recommended vaccine program. Vaccines for children. Six months and up. It's just outrageous. Even Megyn Kelly. Remember Megyn Kelly? Even Megyn Kelly weighed in. She said a scary number of kids are dying after taking the COVID vaccine from myocarditis, among other injuries. How dare the CDC Add this to its list of school vaccinations. Don't listen. Be very careful with your teenage boys in particular, but girls too. These are not honest brokers. This is dangerous. Now, the first response is from the liberal pollster, Frank Luntz, who says, do you have a link to a source showing that scary number of kids? He says, also, the CDC doesn't have authority to mandate Vaccines for school children, school vaccination lists are left up to states and local jurisdictions. You know, I wonder if he's still trying to push. What was that? What was that drug that Frank Luntz used to push? Hydroxy. Hydroco. What was it? Anyway. A lot of people answered him. A lot of people answered him. Never forget, the guy who will be Speaker of the House, Republicans take over the House, which I hope they do, Jeff McCarthy, rents his penthouse apartment from liberal pollster Frank Luntz. It's, it's just outrageous. It's just outrageous. Now, the great heart. Harmeet Dillon, great attorney, comes right out and says it. She says, next time a politician asks you for money or for your vote, ask them, number one, 
What is their position on the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices adding the COVID-19 vaccine to the schedule for childhood vaccines required of students in order to attend school? And number two, knowing what we know now, would this politician who wants your money or your vote vaccinate his or her own child? And if not, what is he or she doing at the government level to stand up to this. And the guy I follow over on Twitter who goes by Rising Serpent, I have no idea what his real name is. What, uh, what he says kind of dovetails perfectly with that. And I just lost it. Let me see if I can get it back. Uh, recently closed tabs. Yeah, that's what we want. You know what? I'm going to find it. This is bugging me. When I when I make a mistake, see, because I got all these tabs lined up in order. You know? All of these tabs lined up in order. And then I goof up and I hit the wrong button, hit the wrong arrow, whatever. That's just not good. So Rising Serpent, what he said dovetailed with what Harmeet Dillon said. And I'm going to scroll back on his Twitter feed, and I should be able to find it. Well, here's one. Every single Democrat policy is designed to kill, maim, impoverish, imprison, indoctrinate, indenture, and indebt you and all your future generations. Not the one I was looking for, but that's pretty good. Also, in response to Molly Hemingway, who has a link to a Substack article, tremendous resource for journalists and researchers here from the wonderful Open the Books historic release, Anthony Fauci's official work calendar, November 2019 to March 2020. Oh, boy, that should be pretty good. Rising Serpent says, reading Fauci's work calendar is a blow-by-blow account of how a close-knit group of very powerful people orchestrated what would become one of modern humanity's greatest self-inflicted calamities and the repercussions of which led to the global economic collapse underway. That's true. No question about it. So, oh, I like this one. I think we're getting close. Let's see if I can say this. He he gets kind of rough here. It would be nice to see, let's see, how should we say this? Republicans have the guts to make not enforcing the heinous COVID childhood vaccine mandate a campaign issue. And and one guy right away says, it's not a mandate. It's a suggestion to add to the dozens of shots kids need to go to school, read carefully, and quit scaremongering. And he says, how many states in the country don't follow the current ACIP immunization schedule? You're not very bright, are you? Yeah. So that's what should be going on. And some governors are out there saying, hey, not in my state. Here's the one I was looking for. 
Rising Serpent said, this should be every Republican's campaign message. Quote, the CDC wants to mandate a vaccine for children that doesn't prevent infection, transmission, or lower mortality, but does increase the risk of myocarditis. And when elected, I'm going to stand between the CDC and your child. That is it right there in a nutshell. God bless him. So, do you hear the story of uh, one of the latest sudden deaths of a young, healthy athlete? It's happening all the time now. Horrifically, it's going to keep happening. From the Citizen Free Press, Mississippi State freshman football player dies suddenly. Kid looks like the picture of health. Mississippi State on Wednesday announced that a freshman offensive lineman has died. 19-year-old Samuel Westmoreland of Tupelo, Mississippi, was an industrial technology major. Athletics director John Cohen said the Bulldogs are heartbroken by the sudden loss of Westmoreland. He said, Mississippi State is a family, and we're all mourning during this trying time. Our thoughts and prayers are with the Westmoreland family and everyone who knew and loved Sam. The statement also noted the university is working cooperatively with the Oak to County Sheriff's Office, the Oktabeha County Coroner's Office, Mississippi State University Division of Student Affairs, and the MSU Athletics Department to determine the facts of the incident. We'll have no further comment until that assessment is completed. MSU head football coach Mike Leach said the Mississippi State Athletics family is heartbroken by the sudden death of Sam Westmoreland. Sam was a beloved son, brother, and teammate, and a tremendous young man with a limitless future. He will always be remembered and deeply missed by everyone who knew and loved him. The entire MSU family mourns as our thoughts and prayers go out to the Westmoreland family. Our highest priority is the support of the Westmoreland family and our student-athletes during this troubling time. Pray for that family. And so the question is, is Mississippi State one of the... uh, Universities that required people to get the vaccine? I don't know. I don't know. By the way, Jordan Schachtel over at Substack puts even a finer point on it. Yeah, he's got a little thread on Twitter. He says, so it looks like according to The latest PowerPoint, the CDC Advisory Committee greenlights the, quote, FDA-approved, unquote, primary series ghost shot, which has never actually become available for the childhood schedule. This shot is long expired, as it was first designed in January 2020 for the Wuhan strain. It is beyond useless. There are no demonstrated benefits, especially to kids, to taking a shot for a long, long expired strain. But in order to add a shot to childhood schedule, it needs to be FDA approved from what I understand. The rat shots, the bivalent Omicron booster, are only under emergency use authorization authority. So the CDC advisory panel may recommend the expired shots to execute this legal loophole. Again, 
This serves only to benefit Big Pharma and its partners in the revolving door system. The whole point of this fiasco is to trigger legal protection for Pfizer and Moderna through adding their shots to the schedule for children. They have decided that your children are a sacrifice worth making. Okay. But at the same time, the CEO of Moderna is saying young folks don't need the vaccine. Wait, what? Yeah, David Strom's got it over at uh, hotair.com. Moderna CEO says most people don't need COVID booster and young people should consider not getting the shot. He says the COVID narrative is breaking down while the CDC and most state governments are unsuccessfully pushing us all to get yet another COVID booster shot. The actual CEO of Moderna says the quiet part out loud. My goodness. And he links to the UK Daily Mail. Where the CEO of Moderna says relatively few people would benefit from getting the booster because like the flu, COVID is only dangerous to people who are aged or have significant comorbidities. And here's the quote from the UK Daily Mail. Not everyone needs to get an annual COVID booster, according to the head of pharma giant Moderna, who also likened the virus to seasonal flu. Moderna CEO Stefan Bancel said his company's shots should mainly be targeted at over 50-year-olds and people with underlying health conditions. His comments seem to be at odds with the CDC, which is urging everyone over the age of five to get boosted. COVID is now predominantly only killing the most vulnerable because the U.S. has built up strong immunity through high infection rates and repeated vaccine rollouts. There are currently around 300 deaths from the virus across the country every day compared to more than 1,000 this time last year. But see, that whole number is bogus. We know it's bogus. Because they get paid to ascribe deaths to COVID, whether the people like COVID or not. Remember? In early 2020, I was all on board because a member of my family is an epidemiologist. And that person told me, hey, this is serious. Don't take any chances, yada, yada, yada. And the first doubt I had... A few weeks into it was when the state of New York announced that they were going to add 3,500 recent deaths to their COVID total, even though they hadn't tested the people to see if they had COVID or not, because they're pretty sure they did. I'm like, okay, wait, 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 hold it, hold it. And that was the first of many discrepancies, which we continue to see to this day. So the Moderna CEO is saying most people don't even need to get a shot. Oh my goodness. Okay, the CDC doesn't care. They went ahead and did it anyway. Here's the official news from Daily Caller. We'll call this the shot. The chaser is coming up. Daily Caller says the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's panel of expert vaccine advisors voted Thursday to add the COVID-19 vaccine to the children's immunization schedule 
Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, voted by a count of 15 to nothing to add the COVID-19 shots to the immunization schedule the day before, which is a recommended list of vaccines for pediatricians to give children at certain points throughout their development. The addition itself does not mandate that any children receive the vaccine. However, a number of states follow the CDC recommendations when developing their vaccination requirements for public schools. Children between the ages of six months and 18 years should receive a two-dose series of the Pfizer or Moderna COVID-19 vaccine, according to the committee. The immunization schedule does not include a suggestion for boosters, although the CDC already recommends children age five and older receive a bivalent booster for the virus. Reaction to the decision was mixed. Some healthcare professionals criticized the move as unnecessary and argued it would undermine confidence in other vaccines on the schedule. Dr. Vinay Prasad, a professor of epidemiology at the University of California, San Francisco, said there is no convincing evidence the vaccine will help the vast majority of kids who have already been infected with COVID-19. Others disagree. Well, the others, I think, are probably paid off. So I'm not interested. Oh, no. No, I'm not interested because... Um, that was the shot. And now, and don't forget, we still got stuff coming up on, on John Durham. Um, we've, no, we got a lot of stuff coming up. We got stuff coming up on the ABC TV reporter that disappeared. We got a lot of stuff coming up, but that was the shot. And we actually have two chasers. First, from U.S. Representative Chip Roy of Texas, a thread that he did over on Twitter. He said, today, the CDC's vaccine advisory committee unanimously voted to include the COVID-19 vaccine in the childhood vaccine schedule. This will effectively protect Pfizer and Moderna from any liability from the vaccines. He said there's no reason to mass vaccinate children as they are at an extremely low risk for hospitalization or death from COVID. He said, in fact, the zero to 17 year old population, which represents nearly a quarter of the entire population, only makes up one-tenth of one percent of COVID deaths. According to a recent study, the infection fatality rate for COVID in zero to 19-year-olds is only 0.0003%. Now, what that means is that's three ten-thousandths of a percent. So Chip Roy says that means only three out of every million children that contract COVID will die from the virus. In addition, 100% of pediatric COVID-19 deaths 
or in children with a pre-existing condition. And he links to the article from medpagetoday.com. He says, it's unnecessary to mass vaccinate healthy children, especially when there are real concerns about the shot's risks. One of the largest myocarditis studies found that for individuals 12 and over, myocarditis after vaccination is higher than the risk of myocarditis after just being infected with COVID. He says younger individuals also seem to be at high risk for adverse cardiac events, according to the VAERS reports. V-A-E-R-S, Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. We're going to get to more of that in just a moment. He says, according to the VAERS reports for COVID-19 vaccines for children from 6 months old to 17 years old, there have been reported 160 deaths, 526 permanent disabilities, 1,959 cases of myocarditis, 4,448 hospitalizations, 5,245 ER visits. He says, not to mention, nearly 90% of children in the U.S. have natural immunity from a previous COVID-19 infection. He says, we know natural immunity works because it was six times more effective than the vaccine during the Omicron variant. And he's, he's giving links to all this stuff, okay? He's not just pulling this out of his ear. He says, could money be the motivator here? Likely. The Biden administration just purchased 170 million doses of the updated vaccine and will do all it can to shield Big Pharma from any liability as is being displayed in today's vote from the ACIP. And he has the article from Kevin Dunleavy, Kevin Dunleavy over, at, I think it's the Washington Free Beacon, Pfizer and Moderna will rake in a combined $93 billion, $93 billion next year on COVID-19 vaccine sales. He says, never forget these people's lies and how we got here in the first place. For example, take the Pfizer CEO's claim that their vaccine was 100% effective at preventing COVID. And he's got the screenshot from the Pfizer CEO, Albert Bourla, April 1st, 2021, saying excited to share that updated analysis from our phase three study with BioNTech also showed that our COVID-19 vaccine was 100% effective in preventing COVID-19 cases in South Africa, 100%. Congressman Chip Roy says, or the CDC's Rochelle Walensky on the Rachel Maddow show just three days earlier, March 29th, 2021, quote, we're vaccinated so very fast. We're vaccinating so very fast. Our data from the CDC today suggests, you know, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real-world data. Chip Roy says, don't forget the regime's media lackey, Rachel Maddow, who said, a vaccinated person 
gets exposed to the virus. The virus does not infect them. It cannot use the vaccinated person as a host to go get more people. Or what Biden himself said around the same time, quote, fully vaccinated people are at a very, very low risk of getting COVID-19. Therefore, if you've been fully vaccinated, you're no longer need to wear a mask, unquote. Chip Roy says Biden even went further, quote, if you're vaccinated, you're not going to be hospitalized. You're not going to be in an ICU unit and you're not going to die. You're okay. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations, unquote. And how about chief COVID tyrant, Dr. Fauci, quote, when people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected, unquote. Fauci again on MSNBC, quote, we have all the vaccines we need. You just need our people to take it, to break the chain of transmission. You want to be dead end to the virus. So when the virus gets to you, you stop it. The fact that we have now about 50% of adults fully vaccinated and about 62% of adults having received at least one dose as a nation, I feel fairly certain you're not going to see the kind of surges we've seen in the past. Despite all these lies, Pfizer admitted there was no evidence the vax ever prevented transmission. And then he links to something I played a few episodes ago, but I think it bears repeating. European member of Parliament Rob Rose with a Pfizer executive right in the middle of it. He speaks Dutch for about five seconds, so don't let that bother you. But here we go. This bears repeating. If you missed that episode, this is going to blow your mind. If you don't get vaccinated, you're antisocial. This is what the Dutch Prime Minister and Health Minister told us. You don't get vaccinated just for yourself, but also for others. You do it for all of society. That's what I said. Today, this turned out to be complete nonsense. In a COVID hearing in the European Parliament, one of the Pfizer directors just admitted to me, at the time of introduction, the vaccine had never been tested on stopping the transmission of the virus. This removes the entire legal basis for the COVID passport. The COVID passport that led to massive institutional discrimination as people lost access to essential parts of society. I find this to be shocking, even criminal. Please watch the video until the end. Voor u, mevrouw Smal, heb ik de volgende vraag waar ik een duidelijk antwoord op wil. And I will speak in English so there are no misunderstandings. Was the Pfizer COVID vaccine tested on stopping the transmission of the virus before it entered the market? If not, please say it clearly. If yes, are you willing to share the data with this committee? And I really want straight answer, yes or no, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you very much. 
Um, regarding the question around, um, did we know about stopping humanization before um, it's entered the market? No. Uh, these, um, you know, we had to really move at the speed of science to really understand what is taking place in the market. This is scandalous. Millions of people worldwide felt forced to get vaccinated because of the myth that you do it for others. Now this turned out to be a cheap lie. This should be exposed. Please share this video. That's it. That's what's up. Chip Roy continues. He's got one more tweet in his thread. And he links to the article from thefederalist.com that he wrote back on September 14th entitled When Republicans Take Back Congress, They Must Hold the COVID Cabal Accountable. And he says... The GOP must do everything in our power to hold these COVID tyrants accountable, starting with a COVID hearing, and make them pay for irreversibly harming Americans' children. Take a look at my plan to do just that. So I recommend his article at thefederalist.com from September 14th to you. And I hope they'll do it. I hope they'll do it. I, I don't know if Jeff McCarthy will have much of an appetite for it, but I hope they'll do it. Yeah, I just get the feeling that he uh, wants to go along, get along. Okay, now, we got the second chaser. And this is going to be kind of tough. I just want to share with you some of the reports from the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System of what has actually been happening to real children after they get vaccinated. And a hat tip to uh, Justin Hart over there on Twitter. Justin Hart, uh, author of the book Gone Viral. Like I say, this is going to be tough because I'm a dad. And uh, I'm sure a lot of the people within the sound of my voice are parents also. He said the CDC is going to regret what they just did. And so then we just have quotes. From the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, we have quotes. An 11-year-old female, five minutes after getting her first dose of the vaccine, said she couldn't hear, said she couldn't feel her ears, lost consciousness, came to... Two to five minutes later, after that, had a seizure for five minutes and then screamed to her mother, Mommy, make it stop. Okay? This is what Pfizer doesn't have a problem with. This is what Joe Biden doesn't have a problem with. This is what Rochelle Walensky doesn't have a problem with. This is what Anthony Fauci doesn't have a problem with. This is what Deborah Burks doesn't have a problem with. There's more. The Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. Five-year-old girl in Arizona, four days after getting the Pfizer vaccine, five days in hospital with COVID-19, October. Vaccine four weeks later, MIS-C. What does that mean? Hang on. I'm not a medical professional. I got to look it up real quick. Because this is important. 
multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. It's a condition where different body parts can become inflamed, including the heart, lungs, kidney, brain, skin, eyes, or, or gastrointestinal organs. Patient had acute, acute COVID-19 in October 2021 after the vaccine. Got her first COVID-19 vaccine, November 12th, 2021. Started having fever November 16th, 2021. Was admitted November 21st, 2021. With multi-system inflammatory syndrome with cardiac involvement. Okay, then we have uh, a 10-year-old girl from the state I live in, Arkansas. 41 days after her first dose of Pfizer. Two days in the hospital. Ketoacidosis type 1. Diabetes, mellitus, polycuria. Child began deep thirst and urination on January 10. Rushed to hospital on January 11th. Subsequently diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Next, 7-year-old boy, Tennessee. 43 days Past Unc Dose Pfizer. Okay, what what is what is Unc? Hang on. I gotta look it up. I didn't know they were gonna be using um abbreviations, medical abbreviations. I, I'm not trained on that. Oh. Unknown stage. Okay. Seven-year-old boy, Tennessee, 43 days passed. So they don't know if he got one or two doses of Pfizer, I guess. In hospital, again, with multi-system inflammatory syndrome, lymphadenitis, conjunctivitis, strawberry tongue on February 15, 2022. Seven-year-old patient presented to hospital with concerns for multi-system inflammatory Syndrome of children develop fevers, Tmax of 105 Fahrenheit. Fever 105 Fahrenheit. Also complained of myalgia and abdominal pain. Next five year old boy. PR 13 days post second dose of Pfizer. Lymphadenitis movement disorder tick. Tick disorder, repetitive neck movements developed after 12 days of vaccine administration. He had a cervical lymphadenitis developed on left anterior neck after vaccine as described by mother. Next, five-year-old boy, Indiana. 19 days past his first dose of Pfizer. Two days in hospital would be labeled unvaccinated according to CDC definitions because definitions, he only got the first dose of Pfizer. Again, with this little fella, five-year-old boy, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, got COVID-19 19 days after his vaccine. Multi-system inflammatory syndrome confirmed case, onset December 13th, 2021, and was positive for covid December 20th, 2021. What a, what a way to spend Christmas. Next, eight-year-old boy, New York. 
33 days past unknown dose of Pfizer. Three days in hospital, unclear which way he would be labeled, because they don't know if he just got one or, or both shots. Immune thrombocytopenia. January 10th, 2022. CBC showed platelet count of less than one. January 11th, IVIG administered. CBC showed platelet count of five. January 12th, 2022. CBC showed platelet count of less than one. Next, five-year-old girl, New York. One day past unknown dose of Pfizer. 10 MCGM with, uh, with Tris. Three days in hospital, seizure foaming at the mouth. Pineal gland cyst. Seizure event possibly longer than 15 minutes. Mother found her slumped over in bed with foaming at the mouth. Postictal state, she did have a fever. Next, 16-year-old male, New York, nine days, passes first dose of Pfizer. Two days in the hospital would be labeled unvaxxed for CDC definitions because he only had one dose of Pfizer. Tonic, clonic seizure, postictal state event on September 10th, 2021, reported months later on February 3rd, 2022. Next, eight-year-old boy, 19 days after his first dose on Pfizer, 10 MCGM with Tris, epilepsy, intractable seizures, EEG, severely abnormal. Intractable seizures was loaded with anti-seizure meds in ER and admitted to the hospital to further get seizures under control. Next, five-year-old girl. Five days after first dose of Pfizer, again, 10 MCGM with Tris. Seizure lasting two minutes. Second seizure, six days later, EKG abnormal. Seizure on November 23rd, 2021, and seizure on November 29th, 2021, each lasting approximately two minutes. EEG found abnormal. Started medication for seizures on... December 1st, 2021. Next, seven-year-old boy. One day after his second dose of Pfizer, Tim NCGM with Tris. Seizure, had a seizure, right hand posturing, body turned to left, emesis and turned blue. He gasped. This lasted four to five minutes. Seven-year-old boy, got to be fun, right? Emergency called and in ambulance, he had a second witnessed Tonic-clonic seizure with eyes deviated. Biden doesn't care. Kamala Harris doesn't care. Javier Becerra doesn't care. None of them care. Fauci doesn't care. Burks doesn't care. What's the name of that Surgeon General guy? He doesn't care. Next, vaccine adverse events reporting system. Six-year-old girl. Seven days after her first dose of Pfizer. Again, 10 MCGM with Tris. I guess that's Standard. Two days in hospital, seizure, loss of consciousness. All test results have come back normal at this time, and care providers cannot identify another causal factor for the seizure. Encourage a read of all of the verbiage. Next, five-year-old boy. Three days after an unknown dose of Pfizer. Seizure. The fever increased to 101. A dose of Tylenol was given, and about 10 minutes later, he had a seizure lasting three and a half minutes. 3.45 in the afternoon. An ambulance was called. He was taken to the hospital. 
Temperature in the ER was 102. Next, five-year-old boy. 10 hours after second dose of Pfizer. Seizure, gaze, palsy. No patient or family history of seizure conditions. Child was unresponsive for one to three minutes with eyes open and fixed, mouth open, arms and legs extended, and muscles rigid and twitching. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says they're going to kill a lot of kids. He's not the only one. I say it too. Next, from the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, 12-year-old male, six days after his first dose of Pfizer, oh, 30 MCGM, PBS, seizure. He had just begun to brush his teeth when he collapsed and had a seizure. He has no medical reason to have seizures and had never had one until six days after getting the vaccine. Next, six-year-old girl, seven days after her first dose of Pfizer, seizure. Child had seizure, lost consciousness, and stopped breathing one week after first dose of Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Child was transported via ambulance to a hospital where she was admitted and will be spending the night. Next, five-year-old boy, 10 hours after his second dose of Pfizer, seizure, no patient or family history of seizure conditions. Child was unresponsive for one to three minutes with eyes open and fixed, mouth open, arms and legs extended, and muscles rigid and twisting. Next, seven-year-old female, eight days after her first dose of Pfizer, Multiple seizures, two days in hospital, no significant prior medical history. Next, 13-year-old female. Five to six days after a second dose of Pfizer. 38 days in the hospital, encephalitis prior. She had been previously healthy and developmentally normal. In addition to seizures, she has become nonverbal at 13 years old, unable to eat, and does not follow commands. Next, 21-year-old female, after first dose of Pfizer, periparalysis seizure, LP7, uh, pardon me, periparalysis seizure, LP, seven days in hospital. Quote, I was pretty much paralyzed for hands and legs. I was brought to hospital, and they treated me there for about a week, and I had muscle weakness. I gained feeling back in my hands, but not in my feet. Next, eight-year-old female, 10 days after a second shot of Pfizer in hospital for three days, patient with seizures and encephalitis, 10 days after second COVID-19 vaccine, no source of encephalitis. Although workup continues, patient is recovering but still has extreme fatigue and decreased functioning, including decreased mental stamina. Next, 14-year-old female, Seven days after her first dose of Pfizer, grand mal seizure, a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, is caused by abnormal electrical activity throughout the brain, hospitalized for unknown days. Last but not least, 12-year-old female, New Jersey, five days after her second dose of Pfizer, would be labeled as unvaccinated in the hospital. Well, she had two doses, and they labeled her as unvaccinated? Really? In the hospital, 11 days in the hospital, Again, with multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. Patient was admitted November 30th, 2021 because of concern for septic shock. 12 years old. 12-year-old female, previously healthy, six-day history of abdominal pain and febrile illness. 
Um, there's a website. It's called covidreason.substack.com. And you can read all about it. Now, if you're thinking, well, Doc, you know, you're beating a dead horse here. You're, that sure was a, a long time to do that. I think you need to know the truth. I think you need to know what they're doing and what they're willing to do. You know, if you're one of those people who thinks that a lot of bad people did a lot of bad things back in the day, and I'm getting a lot of comments on the uh, the live stream. Most people listen to the Doc Washburn show after the fact at their leisure. They listen to the podcast after the, the fact. But, uh, boy, this uh, South Oz man is really pumping out a lot of stuff here. Giving me a lot of comments. He's really studied all this stuff. I guess South Oz means... Um, from um, from the South of Australia. Anyway, um, you need to know what they're willing to do for money. Our Lord told us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And I'm reminded... I'm reminded of something else. Reminded of something else. In, um, in Scripture. One of what they call the minor prophets in the Old Testament, Hosea. There is a phrase that you have probably heard and you may not know that it comes from the Bible. And I want to share it with you, but i got to put it into to context. So the six verses that come before the verse with the phrase that is very, very familiar to English-speaking people and perhaps people who speak other languages too. So we go to the book of Hosea, chapter 8 in the Old Testament. And God says, Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Okay, here's the part that you may be familiar with. He says, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Now, these children, these children it's not their fault what's happening to them. Their parents have taken them to be vaccinated because their parents apparently didn't know any better and they trusted what they were told by the medical community. But it's, uh, it's horrific. 
what they're being put through. It is absolutely horrific. Having said all that, before we do another deep dive into what John Durham has been up to, I have to share with you the very strange story of a reporter for ABC TV, an ABC TV journalist who just vanished into thin air. Now, since Tucker Carlson and Trace Gallagher briefly reported the story recently on Fox News, a lot of conservative news sites have done brief stories on it, but I thought it would be helpful to go back to where the story originated. Rolling Stone Magazine, of all places. And the article is written by Tatiana Siegel. That is the name of the reporter. It's from October 18th, 2022. So just the other day, entitled FBI Raids Star ABC News Producers Home. Well, he's more than just a producer. He's a reporter, too. And here's how the article starts. At a minute before 5 a.m. on April 27th, ABC News' James Gordon Meek fired off a tweet with a single word, facts. The network's national security investigative producer was responding to former CIA agent Mark Polymeropoulos' take that the Ukrainian military, with assistance from the U.S., was thriving against Russian forces. Polymeropoulos' tweet, filled with acronyms indecipherable to the layperson, was itself a reply to a missive from Washington Post Pentagon reporter Dan Lamothe, who noted the wealth of information the U.S. military had gathered about Russian ops by observing their combat strategy in real time. The interchange illustrated the interplay between the national security community and those who cover it. And no one straddled both worlds quite like Meek, an Emmy-winning deep-dive journalist who also was a former senior counterterrorism advisor and investigator for the House Homeland Security Committee. To his detractors within ABC, Meek was thought of as something of a military fanboy, but his track record of exclusives was undeniable. Breaking the news of foiled terrorist plots in New York City and the Army's cover-up of the fratricidal death of PFC Dave Sherritt in Iraq, a bombshell that earned Meek a face-to-face meeting with President Obama. With nine years at ABC under his belt, a buzzy Hulu documentary poised for Emmy attention, and an upcoming book on the military's chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, the 52-year-old bear of a man seemed to be at the height of his powers and the pinnacle of his profession. Outside his Arlington, Virginia apartment, a surreal scene was unfolding, and his story career was about to come crashing down. Meek's tweet marked the last time he's posted on the social media platform. The first thing Meek's neighbor John Antonelli noted that morning was the black utility vehicle with blacked-out windows blocking traffic in both directions on Columbia Pike. It was just before dawn on that brisk April day, and self-described police vehicle historian Antonelli was about to grab a coffee at a Starbucks before embarking on his daily three-mile walk. He inched closer to get a better vantage 
when he saw an olive green Lenko Bearcat G2, an armored tactical vehicle often employed by the FBI, among other law enforcement agencies. A few Arlington County cruisers surrounded the jaw-dropping scene, but all of the other vehicles were unmarked, including the Bearcat. Antonelli counted at least 10 heavily armed personnel in the group. None bore anything identifying which agency was conducting the raid. After just 10 minutes, the operation inside the Siena Park apartment complex, a six-story upscale building for D.C. professionals, with rents fetching about two to 3000 a month, was over. Antonelli recalls, they didn't stick around. They took off pretty quickly and headed west on Columbia Pike toward Fairfax County. Most people seeing that green vehicle would think it's some kind of a tank. But I knew it was the Lenko Bearcat. That vehicle is designed to be jumped out of so they can do a raid in that kind of time. It can also return fire if they're being fired upon. Multiple sources familiar with the matter say Meek was the target of an FBI raid at the Siena Park Apartments, where he had been living on the top floor for more than a decade. An FBI representative told Rolling Stone its agents were present on the morning of April 27th at the 2300 block of Columbia Pike, Arlington, Virginia, conducting court-authorized law enforcement activity. The FBI cannot comment further due to an ongoing investigation. Meek, by the way, has been charged with no crime. But independent observers believe the raid is among the first and quite possibly the first to be carried out on a journalist by the Biden administration. A federal magistrate judge in the Virginia Eastern District Court signed off on the search warrant the day before the raid. If the raid was for Meeks Records, U.S. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco would have had to have given her blessing. A new policy enacted last year prohibits federal prosecutors from seizing journalist documents. Any exception requires the deputy AG's approval. Gabe Rotman at the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press says, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a case since January 2021. Well, Gabe, there has now, obviously. Rolling Stone continues. In the raid's aftermath, Meek has made himself scarce. None of his neighbors at the Siena Park apartment complex building, with whom Rolling Stone spoke, have seen him since, with his apartment appearing to be vacant. Siena Park management declined to confirm that their longtime tenant was gone, citing privacy policies. Similarly, several ABC News colleagues who are accustomed to unraveling mysteries and cracking investigative stories tell Rolling Stone that they have no idea what happened to Meek. One of them says he fell off the face of the earth, and people asked, but no one knew the answer. An ABC representative tells Rolling Stone he resigned very abruptly and hasn't worked for us for months. Sources familiar with the matter say federal agents allegedly found classified information on Meek's laptop during their raid. One investigative journalist who worked with Meek says it would be highly unusual for a reporter or producer to keep any classified information on a computer. His lawyer, Eugene Gorokov, said in a statement, quoting now, 
Mr. Meek is unaware of what allegations anonymous sources are making about his possession of classified documents. If such documents exist, as claimed, this would be within the scope of his long career as an investigative journalist covering government wrongdoing. The allegations in your inquiry are troubling for a different reason. They appear to come from a source inside the government. It is highly inappropriate and illegal for individuals in the government to leak information about an ongoing investigation. We hope that the Department of Justice promptly investigates the source of this leak, unquote. Well, you know, Attorney Gorakoff, in a sane world, maybe that would happen. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But the DOJ has been leaking all kinds of information about the raid of Donald Trump's home, Mar-a-Lago, and the leaks have every indication of coming from the very top of the DOJ, so I kind of doubt they're going to investigate leaks. That's just, uh, they leak what they want to, they don't leak what they don't want to. It's against the law, and they do it anyway. They are a law unto themselves. I think we found that out. But anyway, I digress. Back to the Rolling Stone article. It is unclear what story, if any, would have put Meek in the FBI's crosshairs. Oh, I know. I bet I know. I bet I know. I'll tell you. I'll tell you after this. Anyway, it says Meek worked on extremely sensitive topics from high-profile terrorists to Americans held abroad to the exploits of Eric Prince, the founder of the infamous military contractor Blackwater. In recent years, some of Meek's highest-profile reporting delved into a 2017 ambush by ISIS in the West African country of Niger that left four American Green Berets dead. Meek and ABC then adapted the story into the feature-length documentary entitled 3212 Unredacted, which debuted last year on Veterans Day on ABC's sister company, Hulu. A robust Emmy campaign began prior to Meek's disappearance with events like a screening and Q&A at the Motion Picture Association in D.C. that the journalist attended with one of his daughters. The story was particularly incendiary because it, in, it undermined the Pentagon's official narrative of what happened on the ground in the African nation and presented evidence of a cover-up at the highest levels of the Army, according to the film's logline. Adding intrigue, sources say another ABC News investigative journalist, Brian Epstein, also abruptly and inexplicably left the network a few months before Meek. Epstein also worked as a director, producer, and cinematographer in the 3212 Unredacted documentary. Hulu stopped Emmy campaigning after Meek apparently went AWOL and the documentary ultimately failed to receive a nomination. When contacted by Rolling Stone, Epstein said, I'm not commenting on this story before abruptly hanging up. Even stranger, in the months before he vanished, Meek was finishing up work on a book for Simon & Schuster titled Operation Pineapple Express. The incredible story of a group of Americans who undertook one last mission and honored a promise in Afghanistan, which he co-authored with Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann, a retired Green Beret. 
Meek even featured a picture of the soon-to-publish book in his bio on social media and frequently tweeted about his involvement. But post-April 27th, the book jacket photo disappeared from his bio, and Simon & Schuster has scrubbed his name from all press materials. The first sentence of the jacket previously read, quote, In April, ABC News correspondent James Gordon Meek got an urgent call from a special forces operator serving overseas, unquote. Now it says, quote, In April, an urgent call was placed from a special forces operator serving overseas, unquote. So they just took him out of it completely. So, <clears throat> Rolling Stone continues here, earlier press materials available on the Wayback Machine gushed about Meek's credentials. It said he has covered the rise of Al-Qaeda since 1998, from the Millennium Plot to reporting from the ground outside the Pentagon after a hijacked plane hit it on September 11, 2001, to combat embeds with U.S. and Afghan special forces in Afghanistan. James has looked terrorists in the eye, including 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed at Guantanamo, shoe bomber Richard Reed, and dirty bomber Jose Padilla inside the Supermax federal prison, and Zacharias Massawi at his trial. Simon & Schuster did not respond to a request for comment. Mann, who is solely promoting the book now, which published in August and became a New York Times bestseller, says he is unsure of what exactly happened to Meek. Mann told Rolling Stone, he contacted me in the spring and was really distraught and told me that he had some serious personal issues going on that he, and that he needed to withdraw from the project. As a guy who's a combat veteran who has seen that kind of strain, I don't know what it was. I honored it, and he went on his way, and I continued on the project. Mann says he hasn't heard from Meek since. Now, Rolling Stone at this point says both the Obama and Trump administrations were criticized for targeting journalists and their sources. Obama's Justice Department brought charges under the Espionage Act against a record number of people from top generals like David Petraeus and James Cartwright to document leakers like Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. Hey, somebody uh, mark your calendar. Rolling Stone magazine just criticized Obama. But I digress. Yahoo News reported last year that in 2017, under Trump, as many as 20 U.S.-based journalists, including a Pulitzer Prize-winning AP reporter, were being tracked by a special Customs and Border Protection unit. You're not going to tell us why? Come on, Rolling Stone. Anyway. Well, they, they link to an article about it, but I'm not going to do that. Anyway, but the Biden administration set out to reverse that trend. Biden called the practice of obtaining journalists' phone records and emails wrong. And in July 2021, Attorney General Merrick Garland enacted a new policy that bars federal prosecutors from seizing journalists' records in leak investigations, with some exceptions, including if reporters are suspected of working for agents of a foreign power or terrorist organizations, as well as situations involving imminent risks, such as kidnappings or crimes against children. 
A Department of Justice press release at the time added, to further protect members of the news media in a manner that will be enduring, Garland asked the Deputy Attorney General to undertake a review process to further explain, develop, and codify the policy announced today into department regulations. So given the new policy, the question looms on what grounds the feds would have had room to act on reporter Meek. No one is more mystified by the strange saga than the people who lived in and around the Siena Park complex. The raid became the talk of the building and the neighborhood businesses, but details remain elusive. And then they talked to several people who lived there, and yeah, he was a quiet, kept to himself, didn't even know what he did for a living, et cetera, et cetera, that, that kind of thing. Um, so then they say, at ABC News, Meek's sudden absence has left many of his colleagues perplexed given that he still had time remaining on his contract. But his background was often shrouded in mystery. Some contemporaries were under the impression that he previously served in the military. One described a picture in his office that was taken in a desert in which all of the others posing with Meek had their faces blacked out. One co-worker described him as sometimes gruff but otherwise collaborative. Ben Sherwood, president of ABC News at the time, once lauded his accomplishments in a staff memo, noting Meek's vast knowledge of national security issues and skills as a deep-diving reporter. Now, Meek appears to be on the wrong side of the national security apparatus. And no one can say for certain if law enforcement officers actually removed him from the building. And thus a riddle was born. Documents pertaining to the case remain sealed. Now another person who worked on 3212 Unredacted, the documentary that should have won an Emmy over there on Hulu, said, I just want to know what happened. Meek's situation is making me nervous. I'm just going to deadbolt my door. And that's the end of the article. Wow. Now, Rolling Stone had an interview. I'm going to tell you what I thought happened here in a minute. I'm, I'm going to tell you what I think is going on here in a minute. But in the meantime, Rolling Stone had a YouTube interview from last November embedded in their article in which the interviewer spoke to Meek about the 3212 unredacted documentary. It was fascinating, and I think it gives us some clues about what is going on with the reporter who simply vanished. Now, the name of the young man who did the interview is Jim Alexander. So we, we want to give him credit here, and we also want to tell you the name of his YouTube channel. Because I learned so much from this video. And we're going to play you some, some clips from the video also. The YouTube channel is called Real Talker. Two words, and the first word is R-E-E-L. Like he interviews people who do films. And so he interviewed James Gordon Meek, 
on the documentary that he did for Hulu. And the name of the, the interview video is called James Gordon Meek on an Army cover-up and reveals exclusive new story details for the first time ever. So anyway, it is a fascinating interview, and I think it gives us some clues about what is going on with this reporter, this award-winning reporter from major American television network, ABC TV, who simply vanished. Here's the first clip. It's not just a really like kind of mind-blowing story. Um, I think, you know, these family members of the four soldiers from Operational Attachment Alpha 3212 who were killed in action four years ago in Tongo, Tongo, Niger in a four-hour gunfight with ISIS in which they were outnumbered 10 to 1. Uh, Jeremiah Johnson, Brian Black, Dustin Wright, and LaDavid Johnson. Uh, but, you know, as the mother of Dustin Wright said in the film, Terry Criscio, you know, if we're going to have a strong military in this country to protect all of us, then we need to have accountability. We need to have accountability among the leadership. Leaders must hold themselves accountable. And that did not happen here. The leaders, the men who sent these young guys into battle um, on a patrol that resulted in one of the most fearsome battles in memory in a country where most Americans had no idea we had combat troops, um, they they basically disappeared. They not only didn't stand by their men, they did not hold themselves accountable, and somehow they were not punished. Uh, and I'm talking about two officers, the battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Painter, and the third group, third special forces group commander, Brad Moses. You know, they didn't, they had very little contact with the families. They escaped any punishment, whereas all the low-level guys from the company commander, Major Alan Van Son, to the ground commander who got ambushed, Captain Mike Perizzini, and his NCOs, and uh, another intelligence warrant officer, all got reprimanded. They all got drummed out of the Army, and Alan was not retirement age, so he essentially you know, lost his career, and he was by all accounts, a remarkable officer. But the truth matters, doesn't it? I mean, that's the bottom line. You know, we either have to, we're so accustomed to the government lying, but this was extraordinary. They lied to families whose loved ones were made the ultimate sacrifice for you and me. Mm -hmm. And that is just, I think most people would agree, a disgrace. It shouldn't have happened. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this sounds like a real reporter who's just trying to get the truth out about a story. We have become so deadened to the idea of actual journalism because most of the mainstream media is so in the tank for whatever liberal cause is going on right now. But sometimes we forget that there are still actual journalists out there who are just trying to report real news. That's what this reporter James Gordon Meek sounds like to me. Okay, here's the second cut from the interview. I think it kind of blew up as like, a, wait, what, what, why do we have people in Africa fighting, you know? So I think that was sort of a shock factor. The president seemed, President Trump at the time seemed very kind of caught off guard by this whole thing. It, you know, it just sort of really blew up as a like, you know, in a way, there are lots of things like this happened in Afghanistan that never made headlines. Mm -hmm. But I think this was a shocking one. And once ISIS released its propaganda video a few months later that showed 
um, video they had pilfered from a GoPro on the body of one of the dead soldiers killed in action, Jeremiah Johnson, and selectively used clips from it and their propaganda. Um, I think it just really, I think it captured the, just sort of shocked people, those who were paying attention. But, um, you know, it's, it's, um, I, I think the command, the high command, Africa Command, which is actually headquartered in Germany, hmm. I think they saw this as a really embarrassing loss, and they wanted to insulate themselves from the fallout, from the blowback, politically and otherwise. So the easiest thing to do was to slam the low-level guys, reprimand them, drum them out of the mill at the army, and put all the blame on them as if somehow they had gone on this rogue mission to capture or kill an ISIS commander without telling their senior commanders or getting their approval. And, you know, they walked into the buzzsaw and it was all their fault. And in the most kind of crazy twist of all, uh, the commanding general, Thomas Waldhauser, at a press conference at the Pentagon said these guys were searching the campsite of the man they were supposedly trying to kill, looking for intelligence on an American held hostage by that same terrorist. And just think about it. Why would they be trying to kill a guy if they thought he was holding an American hostage whose whereabouts were unknown? It made no sense. And it wasn't true. That's not what they were doing. Mm -hmm. They were not looking for intel on Jeffrey Woodkey, the humanitarian aid worker who is still held hostage. Okay, are you starting to get the impression that ABC TV reporter James Gordon Meek was more concerned about getting the truth out than he was about worrying about whether he was upsetting very powerful people who had lied to military families? Just a thought. Here's the next clip. Well, there, there is a process. I mean, generals have been investigated, but, you know, that is a rare thing. Um, I think we had, uh, we had the two senior commanders, a Lieutenant Colonel David Painter and Colonel Brad Moses. And Painter actually overruled the ground commander, Captain Mike Perizzini, when he was pushing back and objecting to carrying out not the first mission as well as the third mission to clear the campsite, to search it. Uh, because he felt his men were not, you know, they were not armed heavily. They were, uh, they had no medevac capability. If they got into the gunfight they got into, they had no backup. But, you know, when they called for help, help never came. The team was actually uh, extracted from the village after uh, four hours by the French military forces, mm-hmm. not by Americans. It wasn't until three hours after they left the village before American boots, you know, were on the ground. Uh, who recovered the bodies of the three of the four guys immediately. But um, it is it, accountability is hard. And as, as the mother of Dustin Wright, uh, Terry Criscio, says in the film, you know, people have to hold themselves accountable. That's the value that the military lives by. If a commander, if, if something happens, the commander either stands by their men or they hold them accountable. And that did not happen. The commanders disappeared, vanished. They were told not to talk to the, they were advised not to talk to the families and not to talk to the media. So I attempted for years to get a hold of these guys. And I finally reached uh, Colonel Brad Moses only last year after two years of trying. So, you know, this was, and the families really had no contact with most of the the senior commanders. Uh, So this was, you, you pose a really good question. Accountability is tough in the higher ranks, but the Senate blocked the promotions of two of the senior officers to higher rank. Mm -hmm. So that's not real accountability, but it is a form of accountability. Are you getting this? Look, I have no idea who former ABC TV reporter James Gordon Meek voted for. I don't care who he voted for. 
he sounds like a reporter who is willing to go the extra mile to get the story and to tell the truth to grieving military families who had been lied to. Here's the next clip. I think that's one value of the film, certainly, is to highlight exactly what you're talking about, that accountability matters, that truth actually does matter, Mm -hmm. that if our military doesn't stand on a pillar of truth, then their credibility and their effectiveness is greatly diminished. And, you know, there were promises made by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time and by other senior officials that the families would get the full truth. They would take their time. Instead, they peddled a completely false narrative that this team had gone rogue, hunting down an ISIS commander, that they were incompetent and untrained, and that they were... <laughs> which they were which a to- Green Beret by, by nature is impossible <laughs> yeah. to even have. They're the most probably one of the highly trained soldiers that are out there, you know? So just the definition to anyone who knows anything about this would, would it make sense? But the, beyond that, I think it's so important that the, the investigators at Africa command, which controls all operations on the continent, first of all, they appointed Africa's own chief of staff investigated the incident, which was a clear conflict of interest. And they did not tell the families in private briefings that there was CIA involvement in the mission, that there was actually Mm -hmm. a CIA vehicle that was part of the convoy. It didn't drive the mission, but it was present. Um, And they didn't tell them anything about the hostage, Jeffrey Woodkey. They didn't say a word about that. In fact, it's nowhere in the report, 268 pages full of redactions, blotted out sections of text. And even in the classified portion, I'm told, no mention of Jeffrey Woodkey because searching for intelligence on him was not part of the mission. And yet that got stuck on this as if there was some noble, you know, reason for why they got, they got clobbered in the village by ISIS. So, um, you know, it just was, it just wasn't true. And they told that those lies to the public as well. And it's really, I think people find that to be as uh, Colonel Mark Mitchell, one of the most decorated Green Berets of the last 20 years, who happened to be at that time retired and, and the senior most civilian at the Pentagon overseeing special operations said it was egregious. It was unconscionable the way these families were treated and the information that was uh, given to them was so contradictory and so false. Uh, and he's I think he most people will watch the film and, and come to the conclusion that Mark Mitchell is absolutely right. He did not participate in the cover up. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If nothing else, this interview. Makes me want to go watch that Hulu documentary that James Gordon Meek did on Operation 3212 Unredacted. Here is the next clip. You know, I tend to gravitate towards stories where. You have people who have suffered great loss uh, because of war, whether it's a soldier or or a hostage um, or others. And there is some additional layer of injustice like doubt cast upon um, their, their lives that prolongs their grief, I think, unfairly. And for example, in this instance, we share the, the revelation that the uh, wife of Sergeant Lee David Johnson, Maisha Johnson, mm-hmm. a 25-year-old mother of three. Actually, she was pregnant at the time, um, now in Miami. She gets a phone call 24 hours after being informed that there was a gunfight and her husband, husband Lee David, was m- listed missing in action. And the Army tells her that he's been captured by the, the enemy and that ISIS wants to trade him for um, one of their guys in a Nigerian prison. 
And I spent an enormous amount of time. This was not an easy thing to track down. Mm -hmm. And it turned out it was all based on a, a false intelligence report that was very quickly knocked down in, you know, by uh, Army Special Operations in Niger, um, right as, as a special mission unit was about to mount a big operation to rescue Le David in a village. It wasn't true. And it never should have been shared with his widow without being corroborated. And it has left that family, the, the David Johnson's family, with years of doubt about, you know, because his body was found 48 hours after the gunfight by village children, not even American troops, because there were none on the ground. And, you know, it's left them with years of doubt about what happened to him in those 48 hours. Was he captured? There was a press report that he was found with his hands bound, tied behind his back and shot, you know, point blank. That didn't happen. I had an, I had an, actually a medical examiner review his autopsy report just so I could go to his family and try to give them the peace of mind that the David died fighting on October 4th, 2017. He was never captured. He was never tortured and he was not executed by the enemy because that has absolutely tormented them. And the army never explained that phone call that, you know, he had been captured. They never explained it. All right. Here's another thing I like about this guy. The reporter here, unlike some mainstream media reporters actually realizes that we're the good guys and ISIS is the bad guys. No, no. Remember, remember, when we took out al-Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, the Washington Post did an article announcing that, referring to the head of ISIS, this butcher, this serial murderer, this terrorist, this jihadist. They referred to him as an austere religious scholar. Do you remember that? Washington Post. Yeah, James Gordon Meek isn't that kind of journalist. He knows we're the good guys, ISIS is the bad guys, and he's trying to get the truth to these grieving military families who have been lied to by the brass. Here's the next clip. But, you know, when, when uh, Jeremiah Johnson's mother came to me um, in early 2018 and said that she had been talking to Dustin Wright's family, um, particularly his brother Will, who was an Afghan combat veteran, and things just didn't add up, and I said, you know, we've had suspicions about this from the beginning. We at ABC. And so uh, I and, and my colleagues, Andrew Fredericks and Brian Epstein, we dug into it. And I promised his mother I would not I would not give up until I found out what happened to her son, whether it was a miscommunication about his death or it was a cover up. I would learn the answer. And, you know, these folks are just absolutely wonderful people. And many of them have served in harm's way themselves, which gave their concerns and added weight to me because they actually had experience in combat in many cases. Um, Jeremiah's stepdad is a retired FBI agent. His father right. is a retired Marine, you know? So, um, but it was just the warmth of these folks and their sadness and grief. I just wanted to do everything I could to help all of them. And, and they, welcomed that and appreciated that uh, somebody gave a damn enough to an ABC news cared enough to spend the time to find out what happened. What was the truth buried underneath those redacted portions of that report that wasn't even given to them until two years after they buried their loved ones. Okay. Again, this sounds like a good conscientious reporter. He wants to get the story right. So why did the FBI raid his home? Why did he disappear? My take on that is coming up. First, though, listen to the last clip. 
Listen to the kindness and humility that world-class, award-winning investigative journalist James Gordon Meek has to this young man with a YouTube channel who's giving him major respect. Again, the young man's name is Jim Alexander. His YouTube channel is Real Talker, R-E-E-L, first word, talker, second word. And what a great interview he did of this great journalist. All right, here's the last clip. And then my explanation of what I think happened. I hate calling myself a journalist, James, because I'm technically a blogger. People like you are real journalists. No, no, like, no. You, I couldn't do your work, you know. Um, you're asking great questions here, man. And I, I, I'm very grateful for what you do. But, yeah, I mean, we're all in this together, brother. But, I mean, mm-hmm. I got to tell you, these men fought to the last round. And I will, I will give you a little piece of new information that um, we actually have seen new, new video in recent weeks. Um, the families have, have witnessed more of the actual gunfight, and it is absolutely unquestionable that those men, Jeremiah Johnson, Brian Black, Dustin Wright, and LaDavid Johnson, fought to the last round. They fought their hearts out. They fought when they had bullets in them, and they never quit. And these guys, they had their Valor Awards downgraded. Dustin Wright, I'm giving you this Nobody's heard this before. Dustin Wright was was actually recommended for the Medal of Honor by his command, and it was downgraded to the Silver Star, which is still the third highest Valor Award. But, you know, there's going to be, I think, a new push for um, these Valor Awards that were downgraded to be restored, to be upgraded to the proper, I think, um, level of acknowledgement of their extraordinary heroism. And no doubt. Uh, men should inspire all of us because they never quit. They never quit. All right, you want to know what I think happened? James Gordon Meek reported the truth about how the military brass lied about how and why four American military heroes, Green Berets, perished in an operation most Americans never heard of in a land, Niger, West Africa, most Americans also never heard of. He embarrassed the military all the way up to the top. Fast forward to spring 2022, when he was actually working on a book about a situation a lot of Americans have heard of. Joe Biden's disastrous pullout of Afghanistan, which got a lot of people, including Americans, killed. And it didn't have to play out that way. But Biden just wanted to cut and run. He didn't care who got killed. He never has. Okay, now conservatives and veterans have always been sharply critical of Joe Biden. That's to be expected. We always are. But if an award-winning journalist for a major mainstream media organization like ABC TV put the truth out there in a best-selling book and started doing mainstream media interviews about how Joe Biden... And his team got people killed. And it's their fault. Well, let's just say that would be the kind of collateral damage that actually would matter to the regime. So I would not at all be surprised if agents from the Washington, D.C. FBI field office raided Meek's apartment, took his laptop, planted horrible illegal stuff on it, 
and then blackmailed him. If you don't think they're capable of doing something that heinous, I can't help you. Okay, hold up, hold up, hold up. Whoa, 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 whoa. Just as I was about to finally get to the deal about John Durham, stop the presses. Red State has an article that dovetails what I just said about what I think is going on with the disappearance of journalist James Gordon Meek, and I just stumbled across it. Jennifer Oliver O'Connell, I have never heard of her before, has a new article out at redstate.com entitled The FBI Raid and Disappearance of Journalist James Gordon Meek Should Chill You to the Bone. Now, as I said earlier, when Rolling Stone magazine dropped their article about Meek, a number of conservative news websites did their own articles just saying, hey, do you know uh, Rolling Stone's got this article and this guy uh, disappeared? And boy, that's kind of weird, huh? Okay. But Jennifer Oliver O'Connell over at Red State is actually saying, look, look, whoa, wait a minute. If you don't get what's happening here, then you need to wake up. Don't sleep on this one. Here's what she says. James Gordon Meek is an Emmy Award-winning journalist who worked as a correspondent and producer for ABC News. He is articulate, focused, and relentless in his work as an investigative journalist and exposed the cover-up behind the death of four U.S. Special Forces soldiers in Niger, Africa, in 2017. This is not Meek's first time calling out the United States military and their lack of accountability, along with the lack of leadership existent in our current brass. Over the last year, Meek has been promoting his Hulu documentary, 3212 Unredacted, where he documents this Niger expose and its fallout. In discussing his deep dive into yet another military debacle, Meek spoke with Real Talker host Jim Alexander in November 2021. And then she's got a quote, you know, from one of the clips I just played you, where he says, but the truth matters, doesn't it? I mean, that's the bottom line. We're sort of accustomed to the government lying, but this was extraordinary. They lied to families whose loved ones made the ultimate sacrifice for you and me. That is just, most people would agree, a disgrace. Okay? Her article continues. She says, The government's record of disgrace continues once again. Straight from the Department of Justice. On April 27, 2022, the FBI raided Meek's home and leaked the information that Meek had classified information on his laptop, which precipitated the need to conduct the raid. Purportedly... The warrant and the reasons behind the raid should be under seal. But such is the nature of this FBI. I am nowhere near the investigative journalist that Meek is, but the last thing I would think of doing is leaving sensitive information on my laptop. That's investigative journalism 101. 
If anything, you bury several copies someplace non-digital and non-traceable. These days, my dog's bed is safer than a safe deposit box. I seriously doubt a savvy professional like Meek made such a grave error in judgment. But there are lots of things being manufactured by the government these days, none of them good. And she links to the Boston University lab that's manufacturing the new COVID virus with the 80% fatality rate that I talked about earlier on this very podcast, this very episode. She continues, After this raid, it was discovered that Meek had abruptly resigned from his nine-plus-year producing gig at ABC News and has not been heard from since. Rolling Stone magazine mounted its own investigation. And she's got a quote from the Rolling Stone magazine article that I read to you earlier in this episode. About the raid of Meek's home. And then she says, this is chilling. The Department of Justice has truly become Joe Biden's enforcement arm from parents who are vocal about the immorality occurring in their local school boards being targeted as domestic terrorists to waging vendettas against former President Donald Trump to raiding the homes of investigative journalist James O'Keefe and other Project Veritas journalists over presidential daughter Ashley Biden's journal. We have moved far past, we have moved far past the covert targeting of Cheryl Ackeson and James Rosen to overt action to quell free speech and silence anyone seeking, documenting, and publishing the truth. Frankly, it's sobering and scary. Meek also partnered on a book with retired Green Beret Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann that Meek appeared to be quite proud about. This all changed after the FBI raid. And again, she has a quote from the Rolling Stone article that I read to you a few minutes ago about what happened about all that. She concludes her article at Red State saying, the fact that Meek has disappeared is more disturbing than the fact that he was raided. A missing journalist is the stuff of the former Soviet Union and present Iranian governments. With our constitutional free speech protections, American journalists should not have to fear government retaliation or reprisal on any level. But this is now Biden's America. Wow. Jennifer Oliver O'Connell, speaking truth to power. Over at redstate.com, article entitled The FBI Raid and Disappearance of Journalist James Gordon Meek Should Chill You to the Bone. Can I just tell you something? Can I just tell you part of what I am trying to do here? Because I keep going back, y'all. I keep going back. Some people see what's going on, and some people don't. But the Lutheran pastor from Germany, Martin Neimoller, who said, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. 
Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. That's where we are, y'all. I mean, if you can't tell what's going on, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I'm trying to get the truth out the best way that I can. And I hope and I pray that you pay attention and that you will pray for this country. Would it be nice if Republicans take back the House and Senate on November 8th this year? Sure. Are they going to do anything with that newfound power if they do? I don't know. But I know what happens to the Democrats keep control of both houses. We're done. We're done. So please pray for our country. We had so much information on this episode of the Doc Washburn Show. Our audio software literally would not let us put it all in one file. So that was part one of episode 264. Please also check out part two.